Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week, I have two episodes on Palestine and Israel's brutal apartheid state violence against the Palestinian people. Later this week, I'll post an interview with Palestinian scholar Noura Erekat and scholar and analyst Tarek Bakoni. Today, I'm posting my interview with two people in Gaza, Aya Al-Ghazawi and Issam Adwan. Aya is an English language teacher for the Palestinian Ministry of Education, a BDS, that's Boycotts, Divestments, and Sanctions activist, and the author of articles published by Mondo Weiss, the Palestinian Project on Medium, and Salah Media. Issam is a journalist, trained translator and interpreter, and project manager for We Are Not Numbers, a platform that allows youth in Gaza to tell their stories to the world. Before we get started, I want to ask you to donate what you can to support the Palestinian people. First, please donate to We Are Not Numbers so that Gaza youth can get their stories out. Second, I will post a link with a longer list of organizations working in Palestine. Again, I will post these links in the show notes. Please contribute what you can. Thank you. Okay, here's my interview with Aya Al-Ghazawi and Issam Adwan. Aya Al-Ghazawi and Issam Adwan, welcome to The Dig. Yeah, thank you very much. To start off, what are you experiencing right now in Gaza? What have your lives been like since the beginning of Israel's most recent assault? So uh, our lives at this very moment is really difficult to be explained, imagining that you have a heavy responsibility to report the news from Gaza, uh, to write the stories behind numbers in the news, to go and to dig into details of those children and women died in their homes and the feelings of you being uh, the feelings of you being at risk of being bombed at any time at any place including your children including your family members your loved ones or even imagining those people far away from you that, that they could die and you have to report them as well we have gone through harsh circumstances i would say and some of them that we lost people that we care about. And even those people that we don't know, like children and and women, it's really depressing, it's really sad, and it makes you like cry out loud because you have no hand to help them. You only have to do after they died of the Israeli, uh, because of the Israeli bombardment, of course, all you have to do is to try to make them as a human beings as possible because the media outlets only care about them when they are numbers. So bearing this responsibility at the same time that putting your life at risk at some point and imagining the situation that you could lose your life at any moment, it's really suffocating, I would say. The least words that could be that could describe this properly is 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 suffocation. And after long hours of working on a, on a front of my computer and my, mo- my mobile, you feel that you're being totally consumed and you're totally fell into depression and you don't see hope. You don't see hope in the, in the media outlets. You don't see hope in those vocabulary we are trying to use and the language that we, uh, the language that we learned and we are trying to express in the softest way to avoid uh, the sensitivities of the Western communities and the sensitivity of the media outlets. But I believe after those, those 27 years of my life, I have lived those harsh, harsh circumstances and I've lived the same brutality and ongoing massacres committed, and I mean, in Gaza, like what happened in 2008, 2012, 2014, and this is the fourth one. I started to believe that I have every right to correct whatever terms and cliches the media stream uh, are using to describe my suffering. 
I have gone through tens of webinars and TV interviews talking uh, after the hard news, and I only see them focusing on us as numbers and those children died as numbers. So I'm trying to correct that. And I, and I felt this heavy responsibility that I have, that responsibility to correct the media outlets because like I'm so done. Myself and the Palestinians as well, we are done with being soft and asking for mercy and asking and begging for the Western communities and the media outlets to understand, to at the very least understand that they are part of this inhumane occupation that lasted and still going for more than 73 years. I started to send my deep condemnations to media outlets for being so ignorant, avoiding, I mean, describing my suffering and the death of my people and the land theft happening in, in, in Palestine and in the Palestinian occupied territories. I just stopped them, like for God's sake, just describe my pains in a proper words. Don't bring me here, wasting my time, and I'm putting my life in risk to tell you what is happening. And you don't know you don't know how to use the, the words properly because words, after all, really matter. It matters to me, it matters to those listeners in your media outlets. So at the very least, have the decency, have the courtesy to use those words properly. And I can teach you. If you don't know how to, I believe I have every right to teach you. So it's it's like a cycle, what we have been living, what we have been living, I mean, in the context of this war and the previous wars and life in general for the past 15 years, we have been living, I would say, a cycle of death. We have people that we are being suffocated and being suffocating for the past 15 years. Water is undrinkable. Jobs are barely found. There is no positive horizon. There is no future that I can imagine. There is no hope that I can see significant indications for. But we keep going because we have no alternative. We have no options. And whenever we express this cynical cycle of death, I would say, we protest for, we protested for, for instance, during the Great Marshall Free Turn 2008. Uh, 2020 so far, still people died. We protested peacefully, which should be protected by the international law whenever we are doing anything possible to protect ourselves and to protest this cynical cycle life of death. Uh, we're always condemned by the international community. We are seen as terrorists, but they don't see us as people trying to live their lives in peace and dignity. And for myself, living all these years under those harsh circumstances and I'm trying my best to educate the Western communities and trying to correct the media outlets, I believe that this is the point. I'm not correcting them, but I'm holding them responsible because I believe it's not a coincidence. Like for the past 73 years, they don't know how to describe this. After those 15 years of literally imprisonment and they don't know how to express it properly. So I started to just to stop them and ask them and ask them to abide by the so-called morals of seeking truth and seeking justice when reporting for news. So yeah, this is those are my general feelings towards the situation, and I believe Aya has plenty of them to share. Aya. Okay, um, thank you, Isam, for saying a lot, a uh, lot about the situation in Gaza and suffering from. Uh, to me, the situation in Gaza is quite catastrophic. And Gaza is witnessing a, a state of terror, a state of genocide and massacres. You know, all day and night, you always get to, to hear explosions, um, massive uh, bombardments and uh, airstrikes all over the Gaza Strip. And you just wonder, is, is anybody of my family just, you know, uh, have got uh, killed? now or, or injured? And am I going to be the next target of Israel? And what about my children? You always get to, to ask yourself those kind of questions and you are always in a state of uh, anxiety and a constant fear for your life and for your beloved ones. So just, you know, um, 
until now, Israel killed about 213 Palestinians, including 61 children, 36 women, and um, 16, 16 elderly men, uh, and uh, disabled men. This tells you a little more about the nature of Israel and the, the target bank uh, of it. It doesn't target armed factions only, but it also targets civilians. So any, everybody in the Gaza Strip is a target uh, for Israel. And the thing is that we're talking about the fourth strongest army in the world, that is Israel, that has about 243 nuclear hits. It is the only state that has nuclear hits in the Middle East against two million uh, Palestinians locked down and caged and uh, the Gaza Strip, which is about 360 square kilometers and has become to be known as the biggest concentration camp on earth. So it doesn't matter uh, where Israel uh, hits Wherever it hates, there are people killed, there are people injured, and there are homes flattened to earth. And when we talk about homes, we're not talking about mere buildings and stones. We're talking about a, um, a struggle of a person who worked hard to build this place to, um, to make a home for his family and to start a new life, to create a, um, a family, children, etc. And this is extremely difficult. While people enjoy human rights for granted and they can't just get a job after they graduate and they can build a home and they can have children, we don't get to, to do this easily. We have to fight on a daily basis, we have to fight. We're talking about a Gaza Strip, which has a very high rate of poverty, a very high rate of um, unemployment, especially I mean, youth. We're talking about a place where you have 97% of the water uh, undrinkable. And we're talking about Gaza, which the UN issued a report in which it expected Gaza to be uninhabitable by 2021. And now we are we are still living in the same harsh conditions, but even the situation is getting worse. It is deteriorating. And when you, when you look at the news outlets, you see what, is, what, what they're focusing on is that Hamas is, is firing rockets from the Gaza Strip. They never tell you why. They never tell you why we are doing this and the reason behind what we're doing. The, the thing started in a Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in occupied Eastern Jerusalem, as 28 Palestinian families faced danger of being ethnically cleansed. We're talking about 500 Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. So Palestinians, they're called upon every Palestinian in historic Palestine to participate in their act of resistance and stand up with them. Hamas, is a, an armed faction, or we have a, um, you know, part of Hamas, which is armed, but it's still one of many factions who retaliated for what is happening in Jerusalem. And then comes Israel and collectively punishes Gaza, which again has a population of about 2 million people. This is not acceptable. This is a war crime. And I, another point is that Israel has been doing this for Palestinians since the very beginning of Palestinian Nakba, that about um, 73 years ago. It has been ethnically cleansing Palestinians, killing them, imprisoning them, taking their homes and giving them to Israeli settlers, demolishing other homes, and etc. Even, even before Hamas came to existence, but again, Hamas is an oppression movement. It wouldn't have existed had not Israel started this colonial project. And we're talking about a, um, an, a series, an ongoing series of this ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism. And um, we are suffering from this and we are fed up with news media portraying us as if we are two equal sides, because we're not, and we can't be. And we are talking about 
a people under occupation who want to live in dignity, in peace, justice, freedom, and who want to their self-determination against a military occupation which is supported by the biggest and the, the most uh, powerful countries in the world, especially its biggest ally, the, super, the sole superpower in the world, the US. Uh, just before I, I started this interview, I read an article that the US administration had, has decided to provide Israel with uh, seven, 735 million sales of women. It approved this on Monday, so it was just yesterday. As if not enough that the US administration provides Israel with $3.8 billion every year as part of the military aid. And eventually, Israel uses this aid and uses the F-16 and F-35, which are made by, by the US, against Palestinian civilians in Gaza. But I want to shed the light on another point, a very important point, which actually Palestine, all of Palestine is witnessing an uprising, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also in Jerusalem, the West Bank, and even in the 1948 territories. So it's not about armed resistance. And by the way, the armed resistance is guaranteed uh, for us as a people under um, occupation. And this is a, a, a right entitled to their right uh, to resist their occupiers by any means, whether by using nonviolent means of resistance, such as the boycott, divestment, divestment and sanctions BDS movement, or using armed resistance uh, or any other means of resistance. This is our this is our right, and nobody can ask us and blame us for resisting our occupiers. I mean, what are Palestinians expected to do when they are being killed, when, they, when their homes are being threatened to earth, when their children are being uh, terrified? Are, are we expected to stay silent while we're being killed? This is what the world wants from us to do. I don't think that this is the right thing to do. And you don't have to be a Muslim or you don't have to be a Palestinian to understand our struggle or to take part in our struggle. It's enough for you to be a human being to feel this inflicted upon the Palestinian people, especially that we are not asking for much. We're just asking to implement our human rights. Though the same rights that any people around the world enjoys for granted. And we are here in, in the Gaza Strip, in Palestine, we have to fight. How do you, and you can both answer this and, and respond to each other as well. How do you see Palestine and Palestinians in general and, and Gazans in particular portrayed in the global media? And how do those representations make you feel? Yeah, um, I think that the news media uh, outlets are portraying us as two equal sides. I mean, by us, uh, the Palestinian side and the Israeli side, uh, which is unacceptable, actually. The, the very, you know, the very um, idea that it displays the Zionist narrative means that news outlets are justifying what Israel is doing to the Palestinian people. This is one point. But another point is that we're not talking about two equal sides. We're talking about a colonized people versus colonizers. We're talking about the oppressed versus the oppressors. Um, so this is very important. We need to shed the light on this. And a third point is that uh, sometimes I see that the Palestinian cause is portrayed as a, um, and reduced to a mere humanitarian crisis but it's not a humanitarian crisis and we don't need anybody to help. We don't need sympathy, but we need solidarity. We need the uh, people who love freedom around the world to stand uh, both with the Palestinian people um, and, and join our struggle until freedom, justice and equality are obtained. And until the system of oppression that Israel stands for, namely apartheid, Ends. In, in the last century, 
there was a, uh, an apartheid regime in South Africa. And that regime was dismantled due to the resistance of the, the, the black people in South Africa uh, without using all kinds of resistance, nonviolent and armed resistance, but also with the help of the international law because they chose to boycott the apartheid South Africa and isolate it from the world until it dismantles this uh, regime and then you know everybody is treated equally in South Africa. Here in Palestine, we resist, we do resist, but we lack the solidarity of the international community at the formal level, the official level, I mean. But what we see, what we bank on actually is the civil community, the mass mobilization with the Palestinian cause. This is what matters most to us because we see governments complicit and profit from Israel's oppression uh, of the Palestinian people. But we also see the solidarity of the, of the people around the world. Uh, I was actually overwhelmed with the um, rallies that uh, you know, took place two days ago on the commemoration of the Palestinian Nakba, the 73rd um, Palestinian Nakba anniversary. And uh, people took to the street on, in all countries responding and heeding the call of Palestinians as we called upon them to take to the street to protest what Israel has been doing to the, the Palestinian people and to commemorate the 73rd anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba. This is very much, you know, spirit lifting to us. It really does make us feel that we're not alone and that our voice is being heard across the, the world. Because as you said, news outlets, you know, ban shadows. We are not voiceless, but we are being de-voiced. Our Palestinian Nakba is not shared enough. So what I want and what I hope from the news outlets across the globe is to share Palestinian stories, to share our, our struggle behind uh, and being the numbers reported in, in the news as mere statistics. And this is a very important part of, of what we do up here, not numbers, because we talk about people killed. We share their stories. And one of those stories, for example, is Shayma Abu Al-Awf, who is only 21 years old and who was a third year uh, dental student and um, a bride to be. She was supposed to, to be uh, getting married and in a month from now. And she was massacred. She was killed along with her mother and, and, uh, and, and, and father and sister in Al-Wahda Street Massacre as Israel had the entire block without any, any prayer warning or notice. They just bombed the whole area. And 42 Palestinians were killed in that massacre, including Shayma. Shayma should be trying her wedding dress now. Shayma should be preparing for her final test. And for the, 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 the parties and the um, invitation list and everything like this. But where is she now? She, she was killed. Her life, her dreams were stolen because of apartheid Israel. Another story is that Susie Shkontana, who is only six years old, Susie lost her mother and two brothers and a, her sister, Diana. She only has her father now. And she was under the rubble for hours, for more than 10 hours. And, you know, I don't know how she will continue to live after experiencing this trauma and this her having been under the rubble for all of this time and losing her, her family. We're talking about human beings. We're not talking about mere statistics and numbers. This is very important to us. And we also need the world to get engaged in our struggle on uh, a multi multiple levels. And they can do that. We can talk about this later and what to do. Uh, but um, I also want to talk about something else that Israel targets not only civilians, uh, but also residential towers. It targets 
um, in news agencies. Uh, one of the, these news agencies is the Associated Press that was targeted in Al Jala' Tower, which has many news agencies and many uh, centers for language and stuff like that. The whole tower was leveled to, to earth, to the ground. And now, yani, this, this you know, brings a bell in our minds. You know, why Israel is doing this? And what is the target bank for Israel? Today, it targeted and bombed a, um, a building called uh, Kohel building. This building has about 27 uh, centers for education, training, a, many things actually, many things. And uh, you know, underneath it has two libraries, two books, and they were also completely destroyed. And we have beautiful memories actually in, in, that, in those bookshops. So what is the point of targeting this? And why is Israel destroying the main roads of Gaza? It makes it very difficult for ambulances to reach people being bombed and injured. And it makes it very difficult for people also, civilians who try to reach the, the hospital to get medical treatment. You know what, talking about Gaza, you know, before the Israeli aggression actually, when, when people feel depressed, they choose to go to the, to the beach. And now the whole road that leads and goes to the, to the beach is destroyed, is completely destroyed. We hope to be still alive until this um, aggression ends. But I'm asking myself, where, where can we go to, to load off? I don't know. Everything in Gaza is completely destroyed. Gaza doesn't seem like Gaza we knew. Israel literally turned Gaza into a wasteland. This is a war crime. This is a war against humanity. And Israel should be held accountable for everything. This actually, you know, although I lived um, about three major war aggressions that Israel waged against Gaza, but I think this time, it doesn't, doesn't seem like anything we lived before. It's more aggressive than anything we lived. It's very, you know, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Words and language fail, fail me to, to describe what I've been living. I mean, really. Uh, I lost my cousin in the 2008 aggression. It was very difficult for me because I was only in the sixth grade. And I could have lost my mother and, and their brother as well. I just can't believe that we're still living the same scenes, the same scenario. It, it is happening. It happened in 2008, 2012, 2014, and it's happening now. And the world is silent. Israel hasn't been held accountable as well. So I don't know. So related to the question how uh, the Western community and how the media outlets are, I would say, how they see Gaza. So my experience with this question is that they see us in two ways. The first and the most prominent one is that they see us as terrorists because they only perceive and they only know about the reaction that we're doing towards Isra the Israeli inhumane policies in Gaza. And I mean, the 15 years of blockade and the ongoing uh, aggressions happening from time to time. And, you know, the policies on the medical equipment and expertise entering Gaza, the a few hours of, it, of electricity a day, and so many other inhumane, uh, I would say, circumstances. So whenever we respond to those, uh, to those harsh policies of protesting, for instance, or shooting rockets, we're seen on the global media outlets as terrorists. And the second part is when we are trying to show our narrative, when we are trying to speak our stories, they see us as people who survived the massacre. They don't see us as people. They see us as means of numbers, uh, people injured, numbers of people died, numbers of houses demolished, uh, numbers of 
bombardment launched on and so many other, you know, so many other war terms that describe us. They don't see us as a son, for instance, 27 years old, what I love, what I like. They don't see us as, as a human beings. And those, those two images that they see us through, they're both disturbing. The first one, because unfortunately, until 2021, after 73 years of this inhumane occupation, we still have to prove to the international community and to the media outlets that this is an apartheid regime that establishes an ongoing ethnic cleansing and uprooting of Palestinian identity and Palestinian existence and Palestinian people and Palestinian villages and trying to eliminate any possibility for Palestinian existence in this area. And the second image, why it is disturbing, because, the, because I believe out of this experience, out of my experience with working with We Are Not Numbers and as, as a journalist and as a writer for several publishing websites, I can tell you that why seeing us in the scoop and the, through the scoop of being people suffer, because I believe to write about us or at least to understand our suffering is that you have to see us as people first. You have to stop seeing us as people, as people murdered, as people houses bombed, as people injured, as people amputated. You have to look at our lives. You have to understand what we like, what we don't like, how we see the world. You have to understand the window of ourselves, the window of our culture, the window of our politics. So you can understand a little bit. You can understand what we suffer. I believe this is the basic understanding of any human being suffering. That is why we also amplified the Black Lives Matter, for instance. And before we did that, we tried to understand. We tried to understand the stories of the people, how they suffer, why they suffer, and the continuous and the history of the racism that they have faced under the U.S. administration. So I believe at the very least, at the very least, what they can do is try to see us as people first. And this will be the very first important step for them to understand our suffering. So why the work of We Are Not Numbers is important? Because we always say that we tell the untold stories behind all these numbers in the news. Why such such work is important, and not only the work we're in numbers, because we believe there are other people trying to do the same mission and to fulfill the same faith that people are not numbers, and those stories deserve to be told. And every story, it truly matters. So because for the past 73 years, the international community has, has been envisioning us and the solution for us as, as victims. They don't, they don't see us as people who have hopes and dreams for a future that we're trying to live our lives in peace and with dignity. And humanizing and fulfilling this, this gap that, we're, that we have lost so far, which is bringing the human perspective into this, that we are people who are trying to live normal lives don't see us as victims, don't see us as terrorists. And this is the very first important step to understand what you call a conflict, because it's not. It's in no way a conflict. It's in no way a confrontation. It's in no way evictions, as the media call nowadays, as what happens in Sheikh Jarrah. So to understand why this is not a conflict, to understand why those are not evictions, to understand why those are not confrontations, as what happens nowadays in East Jerusalem, you have to understand us as a human beings as a human beings first. And my experience, for instance, uh, because I, I do other works than the work we are members, I work as the foreign delegation as a foreign delegation. I bring foreign people from different countries to Gaza, and once they have twenty four hours, at least twenty four hours, living with us they start to understand things that they have never understood because of the media stream, because of how the media stream is putting our image on those news as terrorists or as victims. 
they started to understand after those few hours. A day is not something to understand, but it is. It means something for them that they started to understand how we how we live, how we love, how we share our stories, how we laugh. To understand, you know, a little bit of our culture, our language, and so many other things that that bridge. I would say so many other things that bridge the gap of culture, of politics, of a humanized perspective that we lost so far, and so many other norms. So I believe it is very critical to fill the gap of human stories. That is why I have faith in the work of We Are Not Numbers and in the work of fulfilling and humanizing uh, the Palestinian story so far. Uh, for the past five years, we have been able to produce more than uh, 800 stories. And we also cre uh, created uh, more than uh, 35 short documentaries. And we also contributed to several books and we published a book in, 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 in the German language. So yeah, I, we have never imagined that this impact will reach, will reach at this level so far after, those, uh, after five years. But of course, we are thankful and we are grateful for every effort people put into this. I mean, writers, volunteers, editors, mentors, uh, website, I mean, supporters, media outlets, uh, the, the social media outlets and channel supporters. And I believe we would have never accomplished uh, such an uh, such impact so far uh, without their support. Are, many are saying that this uprising is unprecedented in the way that it has simultaneously mobilized Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, and also inside Israel. Do you agree? Uh -huh. Yeah, definitely. Why this happened? Because we have been paying a heavy price with our blood, with our children, with our houses, with our safety, with our mental health, and so many other things. For the past 73 years, we have been paying those heavy prices to teach our narrative to the Western communities. And of course, of course, with the advanced use of social media channels as means of resistance. Because people are now dependent on social media more than the media outlets itself. They don't see TVs. Majority of the people, they don't look for news in, 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 in television. They don't look for them in radios. They do. Some of them, they do. But the majority now, they, all, they, they are using Twitter. They're using Facebook. They're using Instagram. And this has enabled us to explore more ways of how to reach to you, of how to get those human stories to you, of how to convince you at some level that what you hear on those news, what you see on those news, they're not, they're not true. And if they are true, they're partially, they are partially true. And the other sides, it's, it's absolutely manipulated. So yeah, I believe we deserve those understandings and those uprisings happening all over the world. Now we are witnessing people are campaigning, demanding change, and demanding the governments, especially the US government, because they have been contributing this occupation for so long. They have been providing impunity to Israel for, those, all, for all those human rights violations. They have been supporting Israel at the ICC, the, inter, at the International Criminal Court. They have been protecting Israel so far at any United Nations gathering, using the veto right to protect Israel whenever the Palestinian Authority is trying to criminalize Israel and to impose sanctions over. Yes, I believe at, at this very moment, I have started to believe that the power of the people, the public, they can determine the policies of those governments. I understand governments are contributing to this occupation, but at some point, this cycle of, of inhumanity, I would describe, at some level, it will be broken because the power of will of the public and the people. What about the this within within Palestine, seeing people rising up not only in Gaza, not only in the West Bank, but Palestinian citizens of Israel as well. 
A lot of yes. people are saying that this is unprecedented. Yes, this is not a coincidence, by the way. This is not a coincidence. People have been suffering so far for the past 73 years. They have been, ba- they have been paying heavy prices. Their lands are stolen. Their children are killed. Their wives are checked at, at, at every Israeli checkpoint. And so many severe human rights violations. So many. So I believe people are sick of this occupation. And that is why we're witnessing uprising all over Palestine as well. But definitely, and this is an important message, we can survive this alone. We have been paying with our blood, with our children, with our lands, those heavy prices, and absolutely with the total ignorance and turning the blind, uh, turning blind eye and deaf ears towards our suffering by the international community. So other prices will not be fulfilled and will not pay off, I would say, unless those uprisings and those protestings happening in the US, in UK, in Canada, Australia, and all over the world, I believe if they changed even a little bit, then a change would start to happen. It's not happening yet, but I came to hope, and I really hope, that those heavy prices are not going in vain. Aya? Um, yeah, I would like to start with the, uh, a quote by um, the South African activist, Steve Vico. And it goes like, the most dangerous tool and weapon in the hands, in the hands of the colonizer or the oppressed is the consciousness of the colonized or the oppressed, which means that our struggle for liberation is not only about decolonizing the land, but also about decolonizing the mind. I see the current uprising as different. It doesn't look like any other uprising before. And it, ca- it comes a, as a result of accumulative, accumulative work of resistance. You know, it comes and tells us that Israel has failed to fragment uh, the Palestinian people. Over the course of the, 70, the past 73 years, Israel tried to uh, divide us, whether geographically or even politically, to try to create this kind of, like each, each part has its um, own um, conditions or circumstances, like the West Bank and Gaza alone, Jerusalem alone, and then, the 1948 uh, Palestinian citizens, uh, you know, of Israel. But this tells us that no, the Palestinian people is one hand. They act as a whole, as a, a, you know, one unit, not divided. And they are fully aware of their national identity as Palestinian people suffering from occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid. This is the nature of the Palestinian people. So we are one and our enemy is one. In Gaza and the West Bank, we suffer from military occupation. Uh, of course, it's, it is direct in the West Bank and here in Gaza, we have been uh, besieged for over 15 years and Israel has managed to deploy its you know, uh, soldiers around the Gaza Strip. But uh, in Jerusalem, they have many difficulties. They suffer from many things and they just can't, they can't hoist the Palestinian flag. And if they do so, they are in prison, in prison for, for months and years. And, and, and even in the 1948 territories, Palestinians are treated as second and third class citizens there. So it doesn't matter what form of racism we, we, we are fighting. It's still racism. And, and the, this uprising comes and reminds us of, what, of who we are and what we should do. And I would say that the past 25 years of futile negotiations, the so-called peace negotiations and the uh, Oslo Accords and everything that came after the Palestinian Authority and stuff like that, we refuse all of this. Our generation refuses this. And we uh, loudly, I would loudly say that our struggle is intergenerational. 
and that we haven't forget, and that uh, forgotten, sorry, and that uh, Ben Gurion, the, the first prime minister of Israel, was wrong when he said that the old will die and the young will forget. Because yes, it's true that the old uh, will die, but the young will never ever forget. This uprising is the real, literal manifestation of us as a Palestinian people. On that point, there's a lot of debate in Palestine over whether to demand rights for everyone in historic Palestine and pursue a rights-based single-state approach. But obviously, both the PLO-run Palestinian Authority and Hamas-run government in Gaza disagree with that approach for different reasons. What do you make of what has happened to Palestinian politics since Oslo and what do you think the way forward in the struggle is? Uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for this extremely important question. Uh, and I think that, as I said, this uprising is, you know, manifestation is, is, is manifesting to Palestinian people saying no for Oslo Accords and for Palestinian authority and for the futile peace, uh, the so-called peace negotiations, but also uh, we say no for any racist solution. We are fed up of racist solutions, such as the two-state solution, which is, you know, racism is core because it goes against the core of the Palestinian cause, which is the um, refugee cause. It doesn't guarantee my right as a Palestinian refugee. I come originally from Yapa. It doesn't uh, guarantee my uh, me returning to uh, to my homeland and to my city as guaranteed and stipulated clearly in Resolution 194, which was issued by the United Nations General Assembly back in 1948, that it clearly entitles the Palestinians to go back to their homes and also be compensated for the suffering they have been enduring ever since 1948. So we refuse any racist solutions. We don't want two-state solutions. And, you know, it is impractical in the first place because Israel establishes further and further illegal settlements. It does take so much land and it does so, make so much annexation and confiscation of land and, and it ex excludes as many Palestinians as possible. It takes as much land and excludes as many Palestinians. This is the, the policy uh, of, of Israel. This is the doctrine, the very doctrine of Israel. It wants more land but less people. And what we want, what we, what we really want is a, um, I myself go for that option, uh, which is a one democratic state uh, solution. Because I, you know, I have a problem with the word solution. We don't want solutions. We want the end of settler colonialism. We want the end of apartheid and occupation. Once this system of oppression is dismantled, then we don't have to, to worry about solutions because everything will be clear. We will live together in one state, oh, in freedom, justice, equality. We, okay, we are generous, you know why? Because we are the indigenous Palestinians. We are offering Israeli settlers to stay and live uh, in peace with us. But after justice is realized and to live uh, in equality with equal rights. But we need to maintain in our minds that Justice cannot be done without realizing, uh, or peace cannot be done without realizing justice. So our logo is no justice, no peace. So we are fed up of racist um, solutions, and we are fed up of uh, partitioning Palestine and you know reducing the Palestinian people to only Gaza and uh, the West Bank and then looking up down in uh, cages and stands and then, you know, saying that, look, we're giving you land, we're giving uh, you a state and, you know, an anthem and uh, stuff like that. Uh, Ghassan Kanafani, uh, the Palestinian revolutionary novelist, uh, once said, expressed that in a way, I don't remember the exact, the exact, uh, exact words, but he once said that, they, get, they take your land and they, uh, and they kill you and then they give you crumbs of bread and expect uh, you to thank them. So no, we don't want this. We want a, 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 a one democratic state from the river to the sea on 100% of 
this Tariq area of Palestine. This is what we want. I think the two-state solution has never been an option for Israel because, I, as I told you, it's an ongoing ethnic cleansing and uprooting of any Palestinian possibility to exist in this area. So let's not discuss something that was never available to Palestinians. And this, the, why the one-state solution is a, a terrifying approach whenever you're discussing this uh, with, with Israelis, because this has been based, I mean, the, state, the so-called state of Israel has been existed on an ethnical, uh, on an ethnical cleansing and uprooting of Palestinians and racist uh, system. So whenever we're discussing something that the, the very first steps to accomplish it is terminating and, you know, taking this apartheid system down, then the myth of Jewish state and the state of Israel uh, that contains all Jews around the world will be falling apart because it's, it's just a lie that they are manipulating the Jewish existence and the Jewish unity to establish this system, which is racist in the first place. That is why I believe the first step towards this one-state solution is first taking down this apartheid regime. And this is what we have been calling for for so long, that Israel shouldn't be existed ever, because before 1948, Palestinians of our religions, including Jews, they used to live in peace and with dignity together. Are there any final things that you'd like to say to my listeners in the United States and elsewhere in the world? Of course, I have some important instructions of how to help the Palestinians, because this question is very frequent. And I, I believe it's, it shouldn't be asked, but that's, that's my role to educate the people. So what could be done to help the Palestinians? First, I'm sorry if I'm being harsh and saying it first, you have to stop being ignorant. This is the very first basic step to understand something, not being ignorant. The second step is try to listen to the stories of Palestinians from Palestinians, not from a U.S. journalist or a U.K. journalist who understands nothing about our suffering. If you want to understand the situation and the realities and the experiences of the people, talk to the people. Look for channels that they are trying to reach you to tell you those stories and those facts and those experiences. The third part, and which is very important, and I believe it's a critical at this point as we're witnessing protests all over the world. I believe to make the change, to have any possible change, any future for this change to happen, is you have to protest, you have to demand your governments, especially the citizens of the, U of the U.S., because either they acknowledge it or not, either they see it or not, their taxes are contributing to this occupation since day one of the occupation, since day one of this Nakba. And the Nakba is still going because the, the U.S. administration has providing full impunity for Israel towards those human rights violations. And not only that, they're not only remaining silent towards our death, they're providing impunity and they're providing more than $3.8 billion funding this occupation. So at the very least, at the very least, have the courage, have the decency, the honesty to go to question your government where those funds go, where those taxes go. I mean, it's your money. If you want to contribute to this occupation, then this is another narrative. And the fourth important part, and I believe it's, it's also important, I believe you should support those channels which, you are, which we are trying to educate you through. And not only the channel, we are numbers, just amplify those channels because some people are dying to get you those stories, to read them and to listen to them. So at the very least, just support them. Share their stories. Donate to them. Reach out to any, any more global channel and to ask them to partner with them, to put them to a different audience. That is why I believe this, this fourth critical important part is important because our efforts will not be heard unless our voices are amplified. And the fifth important part, and the fifth doesn't mean it's the least that you have, should be concerned about, 
It, it could be the first and the top one because we have been trying over the past 30 years to impose sanctions in Israel. So I believe you should support BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. It is the most peaceful approach to support the Palestinians. At the very least, do not buy the Israeli products wherever they made, because Israel has been manipulating the places of those products, I mean, the production of those products. It doesn't really matter if they are produced in the Israeli in, in the settlements and the occupied territories. It really doesn't matter if they are produced in, in Jordan, in, in China. All these sellings, they go straight forward to fund 70% of those product sellings, they go straight forward to fund the military occupation. So at the very least, at the very least, don't buy those products because they go straight to buy bullets, to shoot our children. They go straight to fund those bombardments launched in Gaza nowadays. And for those checkpoints happening in the West Bank, for those rubber-coated bullets shot our people in the West Bank and in, in, in all over Palestine and with the tear gas used. And if you don't know, those missiles that Israel shot on Gaza lately, they are made, they are made by U.S. companies in the U.S. Yesterday, we have witnessed, we, we saw an evidence of a U.K. warplane going to Israel. And we believe this warplane used in, used in Gaza. So at the very least, at the very least, just boycott those products and go. Ask your governments where your taxes go. Thank you. Aya? Um, I would agree with what the South African Nobel laureate Desmond Tutu once said, that you can't be neutral in, uh, in injustices. Because if you choose to be neutral, then it means that you chose to be uh, on the side of the oppressor, on the, the wrong side, I mean. So, of course, it is important to direct people towards what, what to do and what would be most beneficial to the Palestinian people. But it's also good to, to leave some space for them to, to think with themselves and decide uh, what is the best way that they can contribute to the Palestinian struggle. Uh, I would second what Isam said, that the, the people in the U.S. should you know, put the pressure on their governments to condition aid to Israel, especially military aid, because um, as we said that uh, Israel uses U.S. made F-16 and F-35 to, to bomb Palestinians, innocent Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And it uses other weapons in the West Bank and also inside 1948 territories to kill Palestinians. I mean, Israeli police in, inside 1948 uh, are attacking Palestinians even in, inside their homes. You know, they just break into their, their homes and then they start hitting them very hard because Palestinians chose to, to stand up and say that we are Palestinians and you Israelis are settlers. You came and took our lands and you killed us, you killed our people. And we're not citizens of Israel. We are Palestinian people who did not leave this place. So the, the U.S. people, I think, they should endorse our call of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions PDS movement. And also to sustain from paying their tax money to Israel. They, they need uh, to, to, you know, to supervise what their government is doing. I mean, how can they let their government use their tax money to, uh, to give it to Israel as a gift to buy weapons and use them against innocent people and kill them. And this is not the case with the US, by the way. It's also a, a, a case that we suffer from also in the UAE, especially in the UK, in the Elbit system, uh, the biggest many weapons manufacturer that provides Israel with weapons. Those you know, um, factories should be shut down and they should be sanctioned. Chaya Al-Ghazawi and Assam Alwan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much.
Thank you very much for hosting us and for, for giving us room to speak out. Because this part is part of what we uh, what we ask as you know as a means of solidarity to let Palestinians speak, to let their her you know voice be heard, and to share their stories across the world. This is very important to us. Aya Al-Ghazawi is an English language teacher for the Palestinian Ministry of Education and a BDS activist. Issam Adwan is a journalist, trained translator and interpreter, and project manager for We Are Not Numbers, a platform that allows youth in Gaza to tell their stories to the world. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you just telling people you know to listen to the show and why they should listen to the show. Lastly, please find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.